We open God's Word together, brothers and sisters, to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 32. And there we read the verses 22 through 32. This is part of the history, the God's revelation concerning Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is here back from Laban, and he fears Esau. And so after um, he had gone through, or is in the middle of the night, after he has taken steps also in light of the fact that he would meet Esau the next day, we read the following. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is being delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So far, God's holy word. Let us... The text for the proclamation of the gospel this morning is found in Matthew 15. We give special attention to Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Here we read God's word as follows. And Jesus went away from there, that is, the region of Gadara and the Sea of Galilee, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. 
Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. In response to the proclamation of the word, let us sing from Psalm 66, the stanzas 7 and 8. Come and be to my words attentive, and if I had cherished any evil, the Lord would not have heeded me. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, there is this well-known saying, silence is golden. But there is also another saying, silence can be deafening. Silence can be deafening, especially when those who have tears in their eyes and hurts in their hearts cry out for redress but then are shunned, are silenced, or worse, dismissed, or even worse, put to death. And when the Lord ministered to God's people while he was on earth, there were not a few who would have silenced him. There were those who would dismiss him, like those citizens of the town of Gadara, southeast of the Sea of Galilee, in whose region the Lord had freed two demon-possessed men, sending those demons into a herd of pigs who then went over a steep bank and drowned. You read about that in Matthew 8. The whole town had then pleaded with Jesus to leave their region, and it appears that those people were far more concerned about their finances, that was their bottom line, than deliverance from evil. Besides, there were the Jewish leaders who, though they knew the scriptures, they would have silenced the Messiah, promised in those scriptures, promised to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. But now, what if the silence and the seeming rejection comes from the Lord Jesus himself? What if he appears to be deaf and dumb to the urgent, heartfelt cries of a woman, a woman, a vulnerable woman and her daughter, even one demon-possessed? Does it mean that Jesus is at times unconcerned about those who suffer, those whose lives are ravaged and tormented by the evil one, unconcerned and oblivious too to those who care for those who are close to their hearts? We are confronted, are we not, brothers and sisters, with these questions even as we hear the gospel, the glad tidings of our text this morning. And so I proclaim to you that gospel concerning Jesus who testifies to the surprising faith of a Canaanite woman. And then we hear three things. We hear in the first place the woman's great need and Jesus' silence. In the second place, the woman's persistent petition and Jesus' reply. And in the third place, Jesus' testimony and his gracious reward. Jesus testifies to the surprising faith of a Canaanite woman. The woman's great need, but Jesus' silence. The woman's persistent petition and Jesus' reply. 
and the, Jesus' testimony and his gracious reward. First, this woman's great need and Jesus' silence. This woman has been said to be one of the secondary and marginal figures in the world of the New Testament. She doesn't stand in the spotlight, that she, at least she doesn't seem to, like main characters in the history of Jesus of Nazareth, say one like Peter or John or even a Herod or a Pontius Pilate or a Judas. She's not a disciple, she's not a high priest or a prophet, all those, those others, may be said to be used by the Lord to push the wheel of history, as it were. This woman neither advances history nor seems to have any essential knowledge. She can make no profession of faith. She's quite unaffected by the question whether Jesus will conquer the world or where, whether he will have to suffer and now, the king of Israel, Jesus Christ, had passed beyond the borders of Israel, driven by hostility of those who should have been his subjects. He went after the subjects that he went after, but he had rebuked those Pharisees and other teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem to a place called Gennesaret. You read about that in chapter 14, verse 34. We learn from Mark that Jesus first had to make a considerable circuit. First he went to the north and then to the west and finally so around to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and then again to the west. Jesus had sought concealment, but it has been said that distress has quick eyes. For we read in Mark 7.24 that he could not keep his presence secret any longer. There came to him an unknown, no-name woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon that was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We would say from heathen country, the country where Jezebel, even many of the children I think will know about Jezebel, right? that wicked woman who had been married to Ahab, she had also come from that region. John Calvin calls what follows in our text a prelude to the mercy which, after Jesus' resurrection, was revealed indiscriminately after Jesus' resurrection. For here, a remarkable image of faith is depicted in this Canaanite woman to teach us, by comparison, that the Jews, whose ungodliness was so stupid were justly re deprived of the promised redemption. John Calvin, a remarkable image of faith. It is to her that he says these remarkable words, spoken only on one other occasion, and then to another surprising figure, a Roman centurion of Capernaum in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, woman, great is your faith. He never said that. The Lord Jesus never said that to any of his disciples who had left all to be at his side. And this woman came to Jesus repeatedly crying, as is clear from the original language, repeatedly crying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering from demon possession. Can you imagine what that must have been like for her and for her daughter? 
Chrysostom, that ancient Archbishop of Constantinople and an early church father whose name means golden mouth, said, it was a sight to stir pity to behold a woman calling aloud in such distress, and that woman a mother, and pleading for a daughter, and that daughter in such an evil plight. In order to come to Jesus, this Nazarene, she would have had to overcome considerable prejudices. She would have to cross the border into what for her was a foreign land, Israel. She had to go into a country from whose nationality, outlook, and religion she was totally estranged. She was a Canaanite, a heathen. Besides her coming to Jesus involved considerable risk. What were her own people going to say about that? And what if she runs into some of those self-righteous rulers of the Jews who look down their noses on everyone but themselves? But then, says Helmut Thielicke, you may have heard of him, he was a Protestant theologian in the time of the Second World War, prolific author who wrote a book concerning a sermon on our text. He says, all faith begins this way. We must come to Jesus even at the risk of being disillusioned. If she had remained at home, if she'd never crossed that frontier, Jesus would still have been the Christ, no doubt. But she would not have entered the territory of his blessings, the territory of his blessings, like this territory. She would have remained in solitary confinement and so would have remained without hope. Is that not the same with us, brothers and sisters? You and I also have to cross a certain frontier to approach Jesus. We have to go to Bethlehem and Galilee in faith and Golgotha. We have to trust in the man from Galilee if we are to receive his blessings. We have to leave the land of selfishness and of pride and self-sufficiency and skepticism to enter into the realm of Jesus, that realm of faith and confidence and hope without which we too are doomed. And up to this point in Jesus' ministry, very few Jews had entered that realm and sought solace there. In fact, not a few of them, especially their leaders, had been offended at the words that came from his mouth, as we can read in verse 12 of our text chapter. Yet there she was, this woman. She came and she came crying a desperate cry, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord. Son of David, have mercy, she says. Surely that means that by using this messianic title, that she must have been at least somewhat familiar with the expectations of God-fearing Jews, with the promises of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah who was to come. Remarkable, but she appeared to realize that it is God who approached her here in Jesus of Nazareth. Lord, she says, son of David. But now look and consider. She runs into a wall, it seems. A wall of testing and of pauses and of silences. And that seems very strange, at least to us. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, says, the woman had first to be buffeted before help was given to her. For Jesus is first silent in the face of her cry. Jesus 
did not answer her a word. Thelica says, the silence of God is really the greatest test of our faith. Yet, it would have been hard for so much love, the love of Jesus, to be silent in the face of so much sorrow, don't you think? Is Jesus himself not a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Isaiah 53. Authors, theologians have spoken of God being silent in the face of considering such terrible events as the savage fighting and the horrible deaths of multitudes of soldiers and civilians at places such as Stalingrad or the bombing of Dresden, the massacre of hundreds in our days by black-robed, masked, and demented ISIS militants, not to mention the more recent cries in Charleston, South Carolina, where that that young white man went into an African-American church while a group was at prayer and gunned down nine people. And we too want to say, where is God? Why is God silent when these horrible tragedies take place? We hear the voices of the dying. We see the carnage of man's cruelty and the result of hatred. Doesn't God hear? Does he turn a blind eye? And again, Thelic asks, when we think of God, is it not suddenly so quiet in the witch's kitchen of this hell that one can hear a pin drop even though grenades are bursting all around us? Even if I think I can hear God, even if I think I can hear him in judgment as the one who halts those proud waves that Job speaks about in his book, then he seems to be silent at times, silent almost immediately while others cry, where is my man? Where is my brother, my father, my friend? And then there are those, and they were there even while Jesus was on earth, who are tossed between faith one day and doubt the next day. There are people like that. They would love to hear the voice of Jesus cry out and testify as to who he is and what he does. At times they're tormented and experience the torment of uncertainty. They confront Almighty God with their complaint. Why don't you make things clear, O God? And others, like the Jews who gathered around Jesus but who didn't believe at all, have also been heard to say, How long do you keep us in suspense? Tell us freely whether you are the Christ. Does it mean that human beings, plain human beings, would not keep silent in the face of people bleeding and needing comfort in their suffering. No, only consider the lack of response of Jesus' disciples in our text. The only reaction, their reaction, for her cry for help was, Master, send her away. She keeps on crying out after us. In effect, they say, beat it, woman. What have we to do with you? You're from outside the covenant. It appeared the woman sensed the disciples' aversion to offer her any help, just as you and I may also have tentacles, feelers on our hearts that can sense other attitudes towards us. Yet, yet the woman 
does not turn her back on Jesus. She doesn't throw up her hands, nor does she say, it's hopeless and I'm out of here. No, she returns to Jesus. She goes back. Someone has written, the Canaanite woman gropes, as it were, behind the silence. She wants to get behind the silence, the reason for Jesus' silence. It seems that her heart does not despair of God's power. Does she sense that behind Christ's silence are his higher gods? Does she sense something of that? Does she understand something, perhaps even more than a tiny bit, that then and there Jesus was putting pieces in place in his plan, not only for her, but for the world, for us, for our lives? For those families of the earth of whom God once said to Abraham that they would be blessed in him. The families of the earth and not just the Jews. But then we may not forget another most meaningful silence maybe. Which was at the same time the most terrible silence. That silence that Jesus himself faced. I think of the cross of Christ. The cross on Calvary. Which was God's greatest silence. For then all the powers of darkness, all the hounds of hell made their concentrated bid against the Son of God. And on all the dreadful passions that were unleashed since our fallen Adam were given free reign. Then when the father pushed his son into the pain and the agony of hell, then his own father was silent. Or was he? Or was he? Is it not so that also with God, our God, his actions oftentimes speak louder than his words? Is it not so also with Christ who in his answer of silence to this desperate woman's plea was actually busy with her? Busy with proclaiming his sovereignty, yes, his progress also in coming to the rescue of those beyond the borders of Israel, yes, but all in his time. He's king. And the hour when God did not answer a word when his son hung on the cross was at the same time the turning point. The turning point also for you and me. It was the time when the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Children will also remember that. When Jesus died, from top to bottom, people have said, it was torn by the hand of God. It was the time when Christ, breathing his last breath, entered into the presence of the Father, and he carried all his children with him, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, like the high priest coming before the God on the Day of Atonement, with that beautiful breastplate with the 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel. So the Lord Jesus Christ, our only high priest, came before the Father and he said, Here am I and the children you gave me. All the children you gave me. All those whom he, in his electing love, granted faith throughout the centuries, including Jews and Arabians, Canaanites and Philistines and Moors, and from those in the territory of Elora, Ontario. Those who frequented palaces and dined on couches, and those crawling in the hovels of the nations today. And no, I don't... 
pretend to understand completely the silence of Jesus. I do know that we would have no hope and no life and no answer to the pressing questions of the day if it wasn't for this one Redeemer, this silent Christ, who nevertheless feeds us his word, brimful of his revelation, the revelation of his gifts of love and faith and hope and restitution and salvation, the answers to our deepest needs. The woman saw that Christ's silence was not one of indifference. It was the silence of those thoughts that are higher than our thoughts. And so she persisted in her quest. And Jesus breaks his silence. Let us hear that in the second place. The woman's persistent petition and Jesus' reply. It appears, brothers and sisters, that one rebuff was not enough, for there's a second and a third, and so there is a further test for this Canaanite woman. Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, and even after her heartfelt cry from her kneeling position, Lord, help me, there's Jesus' reply, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Just what did Jesus mean with what appeared to be a further cruel and insensitive rebuff? Well, simply this, that it was even then a fundamental part of God's plan of salvation to begin his work in Israel, in Israel, among the Jews, and not yet among the Canaanites. Only when this has been done, that's when he would extend his work. At this time, prior to Pentecost, this first task of his had not yet been accomplished. To be sure, the turn of the Gentiles would come that had already been foreshadowed in God reaching out to who? Who in the Old Testament? Children would know. Somebody from outside the covenant? Rahab. Rahab. That woman who had led, indeed, an immoral life in Jericho. Ruth, a Moabitess. Naaman, the Syrian in the Old Testament. Yes, they were pointers to the day when the Lord would open the floodgates of his word to the Gentiles. And yet, at this time, Jesus was not yet available to this woman. She needs to realize something of God's priorities like we all need to realize God's priorities. She needs to honor God's prerogative of dealing with his lost sheep of Israel first. Oh, yes. Christ will build his church and he will gather the nations, but in his time, according to his will. And yet, even as she cried out, Lord, even son, Lord, son of David, she appeared to be miles ahead in her spiritual progress than Jesus' disciples, for the latter seemed to be dead, dead to the needs of this woman and her daughter oblivious to the great spiritual crisis in need of this woman, they would only have Jesus wave his hand to dismiss her. After all, is she not from Tyre and Sidon? Perhaps there are some also here among us who can identify with what appears to have been this woman's turmoil and her realization, this realization, 
so I really don't belong to him. Sometimes Christians have that idea. Christians also can have that idea. I don't belong to him. It doesn't seem that way. Yes, there is the cross, and there are those promises to others. I'd like to experience his peace, but there seem to be so many obstacles. How can I belong? How can I be a Christian? How can I have what these other people seem to have? How can I have children's bread and not dog food? Those who would speak this way may come in for a quick dismissal by those who are in the know or think they are in the know. Yet their predicament is often very real and very pressing. Pressing for redress, for understanding, for resolution. I do not belong. I just cannot believe. I don't seem to have the gift. I must be an outsider. And here is one who says, You must understand it's not given to me. And another, I don't have the knack for this faith that you're talking about. And another, I should like to, but I just don't seem to measure up. But back now to the woman, and more important, back to her and our Savior. Even as she hears Jesus answer for her cry for help, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs? What does she do? Does she give up her quest? Does she throw in the towel? We might have expected her to do that. There are those indeed who even find Jesus' words an outrage. An outrage. Does it not seem to be that way? Jesus' reply appeared at first glance to cut away all hope and even more harshly than before. For not only does he say that he owes the Jews all the grace that he has received from the Father and must dispense, he must give it to them if they're not to be cut off. No, with what appears to be an insult, he compares the woman and her race to the dogs. Then we should realize that in speaking of that children's bread, that Jesus surely must have meant those gifts, those promises of salvation given to Abram and his seed, gifts that we also have received. This afternoon we're reminded of that indeed also when a child is baptized. Gifts of adoption as God's people. Gifts of redemption, of rescue from sin. Not those general gifts which God showers on all human beings. The beautiful sunshine today doesn't only come on believers, but also unbelievers and their crops. The light of the sun, the breath of life, the fruits of the earth, spring rains, harvests of corn and bread. No, he means indeed the promises of salvation. And he says those are for the children. The pride of our flesh, our human nature, must also be humbled even to the ground when we consider that we at one time were dogs. Dogs. Whom, as Calvin says, the Lord might have deservedly cast on the dung heap, the garbage heap together with that other pack of dogs which, through their own fault and in their first parents, had become degenerate. Also of that we're reminded this afternoon when the form for baptism speaks of being conceived and born in sin. You and me. Dogs. The Lord, in his sovereign wisdom and providence, had excluded the Gentiles from his kingdom 
until he would come to them with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and beyond. And yet, and yet, even at other times, even times going back centuries, the Lord had given telltale signs that he intended to bring the Gentiles in also. True, in Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out the twelve, he gave them these instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Yet prior to that, Jesus had testified to the great faith of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. Truly, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And early on in his ministry, he had proclaimed the gospel in his hometown of Nazareth. And then he had reminded the hearers of the fact that at the time of a great famine in Israel, Elijah was not sent to any of the widows of the Jews, but where? To another Canaanite woman. Another Canaanite woman. The widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. Same territory. Luke 45. Luke 25. Now, here, even as he appeared to rebuke this woman, Jesus was actually very busy with her. Only think of what she says. Yes, Lord, or as another translation has it, truth, Lord. True, she says, you're right, Lord. That is master. She recognizes him as master. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't protest. What Jesus said, she doesn't disagree what he says, in effect, that she is acting out of turn when she raids the table in the middle of supper. Surely there are telltale signs of faith in what she says. No, not that you and I can look into her heart, but that she exhibits something of that hunger and thirst for the Lord, this Lord, this helper, this friend, this Messiah, and that surely indicated the certain surrender and a longing for fellowship with him. Is that not what faith is all about? She'd received a taste of godliness, for without some knowledge of the promises, she could not have called Christ the son of David. She could not have called him Lord. She had already somewhere, somehow, received a taste of godliness. It appears, as someone else says, that the odor of the promises had spread into Gentile lands already. The odor of the promises. A beautiful expression. She conceived the faith from the law and the prophets, for faith is always born out of God's word. It doesn't come from nowhere. And she perseveres in prayer. And Romans 10, 14 says, no one can pray rightly unless the word of God has led the way. Jesus, so Jesus had spoken inwardly to the woman's mind. It stood in the place of external preaching, as it does here. Had she not learned that Christ came as Redeemer? Now those who covet this teaching trust that he will be favorable to them. Jesus or Christ's silence was not to quench the woman's faith, but rather to sharpen her zeal and to kindle her fervor. <coughs> she, she doesn't say that her brain is in agreement with Jewish thinking, Jewish dogma. That may also have been the case, but she doesn't say that. 
but she appears to be hungry and thirsty for that communion and for that righteousness which is not disconnected from Christ's love and healing and life, but is an essential part of it. Just like you and I, indeed, if we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week, must hunger and thirst for the communion that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just a matter of, indeed, agreeing with the brain, indeed, to the doctrine that is contained in there, the doctrine concerning the Lord's Supper. Of course, that's a part of it. But it is hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that is ours in relationship with Christ. And this woman understands something of that. And in this, she was already blessed. Jesus himself says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and a humble and broken spirit I will not despise. This woman does not suppress her hunger. Why not? Is it because of her resolute resolve? For no, as Augustine has said, we could not seek God if he had not already sought us. Think of that. We could not seek God if he had not already sought us. The woman, even as she answered the Lord, was being led to do so by the very person she confronted. Already he had found her. Already she knew, and she clung to something of his called grace and mercy and love. She clings to that. Truth, Lord. On the one hand, that means, yes, I accept the justice of your science. You do not owe me an answer when you are right to pass on Jesus of Nazareth. Yet, yet the dogs eat the crumbs. The woman weaves a plea from Jesus' own words. She says, in effect, yes, Lord, I am one of the dogs. But that must mean I'm not an alien. I belong to the household just as those puppies belong. You have a puppy. Oftentimes, puppies are said to belong to the household. Instead of reading, yet the dogs eat, we can translate as this new translation does, for even she does not enter a caution or an admonition against Jesus' comparison, but she accepts it wholly, and she only asks him, to act on his own comparison. She does not ask for a place at the table, nor anything taken from those who have a prior claim to the more abundant share of his mercy. No, a crumb is enough for her. Think of that, brothers and sisters. A crumb is enough for her. A crumb of salvation. A crumb of God's promises. She clings to that. Did she right there and then realize that a crumb of God's mercy and grace and faithfulness is better than a smorgasbord of what this world has to offer? It reminded me of the action of Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile, who took home with him a couple of... What did he take home with him? He took home a couple of mules loads of Israelite soil when he had been healed. What did he want? This war man from Syria, what did he want with a, with, with a couple of mules, loads of dirt? Couldn't he find any back home? 
Well, it was Israelite soil of that place where he had been healed. For you see, a couple of bags of God's kingdom territory is far more valuable than all the real estate of Damascus or of Las Vegas in the grip of heathendom. In her answer, faith, humility, perseverance, swift perception of his meaning, and hallowed ingenuity and boldness are equally admirable. By admitting that she was a dog, she shows that she too was a poor child. A poor child? She'd made the good confession. A crumb had already fallen in Jesus' brief visit. May she not eat of it? She takes her place besides that Roman centurion in chapter 8. And so we come to the last, if you have some patience yet, Jesus' testimony and his gracious reward. Excuse me one moment. Can you, can I pass by someone who renounces all his or her merits, all his or her achievements, and makes no mention of his or her faith, excepting only to receive of your and my love and our generous hands? Can we pass by someone like that? Perhaps we can. I'm ashamed to admit it. I do, and I have. We do. But what about you, Jesus, Savior from Nazareth, Savior of the world? Can you pass by such a person? No, no. Jesus cannot. He will not. Martin Luther says this woman takes Jesus at his own words and especially in his testimony that he loves the hungry and the thirsty and the poor. Yes, the poor and the poor in spirit. Did he not say that he would not despise a contrite, a humble heart? And so Luther says she had flung the sack of his promises at his feet and he cannot step over it. Let me say that once more. Luther's words. She flung the sack of his promises at Jesus' feet. And Jesus cannot step over his own promises. He cannot neglect that. And Felica adds, she had caused the heart of God to prevail against the silence of God. Yes, she'd caused the heart of God to prevail against the silence of God. That's why Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Her faith is shown by her deeds. She was fighting for the life of her daughter, fighting against that powerful opposition, demon possession, indeed. But her mother, though facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles, tenaciously clings to Jesus. Once long ago, there was a covenant child by the name of Jacob. And now it should become clear as to why we read from Genesis, which means one who grasps the heel 
figuratively deceiver. A covenant child whom God wrestled into confessing his name, who held on to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, that's the manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God before he took on our flesh and blood. Until he had received God's blessing. And now here, a Canaanite woman, seemingly grasping at straws, wrestles with Jesus. And she does so while savoring a covenant crumb, some knowledge of redemption, salvation, up till then reserved for the people of God. And she is more than conqueror. She receives Jesus' own testimony concerning the value of his grace and the reality of her faith, a faith which is immediately rewarded in more ways than one. Yes, in the first place by the Lord Jesus granting her request, for from that very hour her daughter was healed. What a blessing, what a reward. Yet in more ways than one, for in reaching out to her daughter, Jesus extends his heart, a Savior's heart for this woman, confirmation of the preciousness even of God's life-giving crumbs, crumbs which in the way of God's grace and through that same great faith would have her walk on mountains beyond the reach of foes. John Calvin says this woman so seasoned her confidence with humility that she did not lay rash claim to anything and yet did not shut herself off from the fountain of Christ's grace by the sense of her own unworthiness. At the same time, the thoughtlessness, not only of the disciples who ought to have been acutely conscious of the wealth of God's grace, as well as the ingratitude and unbelief of the people who claim to be holy unto God, is condemned by the praise of this heathen woman. Congregation, should you and I sometimes doubt? Doubt the mercy and goodness of God? Should we at times be close to rejection of all thoughts and hope and help and healing? May we not let go of our Savior, but may we believe that he does not let go of us. May we, so richly favored with heart and head and hands knowledge of the Redeemer, look up, look up, as we indeed also will be exhorted to do next Sunday at the table of the Lord, that we may see Jesus and so doing rejoice. Even as we bring our pleas, our fervent requests before the Lord through him. And then in prayer and in faith progressing, so showing him our empty yet our longing hands, he will surely extend his grace to us. For he does not give his children stones for bread, but with his heavenly bread will nourish them unto life, even life everlasting. For Christ's sake. Amen.